Geek Top 5 Quarantine Edition. Yay! It was time now. There was was all the time I needed. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And it is Spooktober. Uh, it's hard to tell when you look outside sometimes because hasn't it seemed scary for a little while? But nope, this is the official time where we want to take a look at all the cool, horrific monsters and jazz. And uh, you know what? Graham and I, we tend to be more cheerful people, so we figured it's not great to do that on our own. So we brought in a special guest to help us with the details. Yeah, this week we have Mr. D.W. Khan, a comic book writer and uh, a man with a, a colorful... Uh, history if you go by the the internets and and we'll get into that and uh, he's here to talk about a new crossover that he's doing and he's got a kickstarter running for it's uh lovecraft pi meets miskatonic high we'll get into the details of that and then he's got a cool top five for us so welcome to the show dave great thanks thank you guys for having me i really appreciate you uh bringing me out here tonight uh thanks for coming it went to all that expense to you know, pick you up at your home and drive you to this virtual recording space. My arms are exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is uh, this is DW Con. We're, we're talking about uh, comic books, but before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit how you got into the business? And, and comics isn't uh, isn't your your first foray into this this entertainment field. What uh, what got you started down the path of entertainment? Um, oof. It was just one of those things, I guess, uh, early on in life that, uh, you know, when I was about 12, 13 years old, I really wanted to get into film. And that was, you know, kind of my my dream, my goal. And uh, when I was in high school, back in 87, I ended up, I uh, was lucky enough to be on the set of Jaws for The Revenge. And That's very cool. It was, yeah, it was, well, it's, you know, I, I live on Martha's Vineyard, so we, we ended up, uh, the first drive-in movie, and the only drive-in movie I saw when I was, what, four or five years old was Jaws, my parents took me to. So, um, it just kind of worked out that uh, years later, I ended up on the, you know, the set, you know, because they shot the first portion of that movie here in the island in uh, February. And so there was like a high school band that was playing, and I was part of the high school band. And so they just, you know, took did different uh, close-ups of everybody and so on and so forth. And after that, I was just, you know, even though I froze my ass off all night, I was really having a lot of fun with that and wanted to learn more. And um, ended up, I didn't really want to move out to L.A. to, to get into film. I decided to, uh, I was a big, big into makeup effects uh, in high school. And so I first had Tom Savini's book um, that I had gotten. And, and then also that he had put out a documentary back in the day, or Fango, I should say, put out a documentary back in the day and uh, about all his you know his previous work and so i was a huge fan of his and george romero and so on and so forth and i figured well if there's a better way to learn about makeup effects is to move to pittsburgh which was the zombie capital of the world at the time and <laughs> so i went to school there for <laughs> i went to school there for a while and uh ended up uh working on a, a bunch of films there between that and going to school and then i got offered uh work uh you know out in la uh, from uh, from a couple of la crews and so I decided just to, you know, take a chance and uh, go out there and, you know, see how it works out. And so I ended up moving out there in, uh, you know, mid-93, I guess. And just right out of the gate, as soon as I landed, I ended up working on three different uh, TV shows, you know, right in a row. And then, or I should say movies of the week, not necessarily TV shows. Um, and then just kind of kept, you know, building on from there. Just hopped around. Because, you know, I, I, it's, it's, you know, back then it was more of the old school way of doing it where you kind of work your way from the bottom up. And uh, so I wanted to learn every if because I, I ultimately wanted to be a director and producer and writer. And to me, if you know, it's it's really good to learn all those facets so that you kind of know how um, every gear and the mechanism works. You know, especially if you end up being in charge at some point, whether it's the producing and the directing aspect of it. And I also found too writing sometimes it got in the way, but uh, a lot of times it was very helpful. You know, when you're writing out a script or um, you know, doing rewrites and so on and so forth to kind of figure out, oh, okay, if we do this scene, it's going to cost this much money. If we do that scene, it's going to cost this much, or if we have this effect, and so on and so forth. So, um, And I worked a lot in you know, various budgets, and when I did a lot of my, uh, my own work, a couple of my own films, um, they're all low budget, so it definitely helped having kind of all that knowledge of everybody's position and what they could accomplish in, you know, in various uh, budget categories and try to get you know, stuff out there. So, um, 
but then as far as getting into comics, um, we ended up, uh, I guess the way it was just kind of by happenstance because we wrote, we came up with the idea of, you know, of doing Lovecraft PI about a little over 10 years ago. And it was only because of the fact that, um, it came to my attention that uh, Lovecraft had become into public domain and we're like, Oh, well, you know, my buddy and I were really big fans of Lovecraft. And it was one of those things that, you know, it's like, well, you get Lovecraft cosmic monsters. You get, we are big fans of noir and Dashiell Hammett. It's like, you know, what better way to have a detective in the thirties fighting cosmic monsters <laughs> and to call him Ward Lovecraft. Cause we didn't want to have it HP since HP is a completely, you know, he's the author. He's a completely different component of that. But I just like the idea of some of the stuff that HP wrote in his stories, which he was obviously fond of the detective, you know, novels and so on and so forth. And he even, um, in one of the uh, biographies, he created the the PDA, which is in my second book, The Curious Case, which is the initials for the Providence Detective Agency that he created when he was like 13. And so him and his little buddies would get together, make badges, they, you know, go around, pretend they arrested people and so on and so forth. So that, to me, was always kind of, if, when we started getting into the Lovecraft PI stuff, I just kind of harkened back to some of his early childhood, because his childhood was kind of, HP's childhood was not necessarily the greatest so to, to read anything that he you know with his friends and how he kind of hung out with them and what you know the stuff that he ended up um, kind of accomplishing at a young age I kind of wanted to pull some of that and, and put it into the character of Ward Lovecraft and so they kind of build that character and fill that character up and um, so we wrote Shaun the Dark we wrote it actually as a screenplay and we shopped it around didn't really get anywhere and so then at that same time, people were doing more and more comic adaptations, you know, uh, or I should say people were taking comics and, and creating them into uh, movies. Not so much the superhero stuff, because that had already been kind of being done, but, you know, just more independent. So um, I was fortunate enough to be able to to go ahead and put some of my own money into it and start creating uh, Shart in the Dark. Um, and that took us, oof, that was a learning curve. So that took us about five years to get that book done. There's just a lot. I'd never done a comic book in my life, so it was it was definitely a learning curve in a lot of ways. So, what what ended up? Uh, what caused it to take so long to to see it all the way through? Um, it was a combination of things. One was trying to convert a screenplay into a comic script, which is different. Um, and those are those are some of the things I still struggle with a little bit because I when I write screenplays, I write a lot. And um, it's just that paring down. And then when you try to transfer that over into comic panels, you're really trying to pluck out the stuff that's going to sell the panel as well as you want to make sure you give enough detail for the, um, you know, the dialogue and all, everything that's going on as well. But you don't want to have too much. You want to have this kind of interesting balance. But, you know, you're only given a small square or a page at best, whereas in a movie, obviously, you're getting a camera and film and so on and so forth. So it's just trying to get that visual sense um, pared down was tough. Um, but then also is just the learning curve of hiring artists and, you know, see who sticks and who does it and so on and so forth. And that, uh, that became disheartening sometimes because we'd get through, you know, cause the, the way shot in the dark was, is we were originally going to do it as three floppies and release each floppy out on Kickstarter and do it that way. And just for, you know, cost effective purposes. And that didn't become the case because we ended up you know, we'd, we'd get through a half a book or most of a book and then all of a sudden something would happen with the artist and we'd have to start over again. So that was a lot of money gone. Then we'd have to start over again. So it, this happened several times. And so, um, you know, finally, uh, by the end of it, we have, as you can see, Shot in the Dark, we have some of the artwork that is, you know, done by um, uh, Anthony and then some of it is done, the last book is done by Daniel. So, um it's just one of those things that we wanted to make sure that if we did it, we, we completed it 100% and wanted to do it properly. But it, it took, it, again, it just, it was one of those things you just don't realize how hard it is to put something like that together until you actually start doing it, at least, at least in our sense. And then, um, you know, but curious case from then on went a lot easier. And, uh, the guys have been with me now for about five, six years, uh, my same crew. And so we've been putting this stuff out, you know, a little bit faster now and, uh, you know, just kind of sharpening it up uh, from what it was at the beginning. But, you know, like it's just like it, I, I, I kind of associate it with Evil Dead, like Evil Dead. You know, you, you see the movie Evil Dead. And you're like, wow, this is a fun little movie. It's a little rough around the edges. And you watch Evil Dead, too. And it's they kind of tightened it up. 
you know, and that's kind of how I see it is, is the, our first book is <laughs> like Kittle dead in a lot of ways. It's a little rough around the edges, but it's a lot of fun and, and kind of gets us going. And then we just kind of go from there with curious case. And now with, uh, the crossover Miskatonic high. And the, the second one that was geared to be a comic book right from the beginning. The curious case. Uh, yes. Um, it was one of those things where I had a, I really am a big fan of the reanimator, uh, movie from 85. I saw that when I was like 12 years old, um, at the time in the eighties when it first hit HBO, I think it was. And seeing that movie, movie for a 12 year old. Yeah, I, well, it's funny because my parents were never into us watching rated R movies or anything like that, and I would sneak off to my buddy's house, and you know, we'd watch all sorts of crazy stuff, and and it was unrated, so I was like, well, what is unrated? I don't know what that means. I can mean, you know, <laughs> anywhere from G to R. I, I didn't think it was that bad, so to speak, because it was unrated. Oh, oh my! Um, when you get to that last, the, those last scenes in that movie are just insane, and it, it's it's such a great film in a lot of ways, and it's it could never be done. Not forget even being done now. I don't think it had ever been done even 10 years after it was made. But um, that blew my mind. And the fact that there's this guy, H.P. Lovecraft, that had written that, or supposedly had written that, I was like, well, I got to check this guy's stuff out. And that was really the first time I got introduced to him, his work. And then I ended up reading that story, which, you know, there's essences of it that are in that movie, but not all of it's there. Um, and then, you know, from that, I just kept reading some more of his stuff as I went along. And then um, picked it up later in life as well. And um, it wasn't, again, until about 10, 12 years ago that I really kind of dove back into it. Um, not so much even just his uh, writings, but also just more of his personal life, his letters. And I've been doing a lot of research uh, at the John Hay Library, which is in Providence, Rhode Island. And they have about 35 uh, boxes of, of just letters and postcards and all sorts of stuff. So I spent a lot of time there going through stuff because it's just... There's a lot of things you just find that just people, um, you know, who, you know, whether they were writing him or writing friends of his or, or talking about him and so on and so forth, you just kind of pick up all these little nuances. And that's kind of what I strive for when I build these characters. I like all the little nuances that go in there to kind of build this character up. So I, I just want to take one tiny step back and talk a bit more about uh, what I've discovered on IMDb. And, and you know, IMDb is not necessarily the most legitimate place in the world. But according to that, you worked on, on The Mask and, and Mortal Kombat and Titanic. Can you yes. tell us some of the, your experiences on those? Yeah, sure. Um, the Mask, we came in as a... Well, they had finished pretty much shooting the movie, and then the the gentleman I was working with, uh, Eugene McCarthy, who was the prop master, he, um, we were friends with those folks at New Line, and so they ended up bringing us in to do some um, reshoots. And so we, you know, one of the biggest scenes we did was when uh, Jim Carrey comes out of the Coca Cabana and he has all the money and he shoots all the money out of his sleeves, and so we had to we had to figure out how to do that. And so I came up with this idea of taking a shop vac and we took, um, they had these like old plastic gutters that you, you can bend and manipulate and all that. So we took these gutters, we molded them and they'd slowly slide them up his sleeve. And then we put the shop vac backwards and then feed them. One of us would feed the money through the, um, you know, this opening that we had made within the gutter that would up, that was hidden up his sleeve. And that's how we'd shoot the money out. You know, and, and it and it took us a lot of tries just prior to even doing that because we had to make sure the money was the right type, it was stiff enough so that we can get that full on like, you know, just just kind of confetti look of cash just being blown around. So we did that. Um, there's the other specific scene that I did was uh, where he comes out of his apartment and there's a, um, a little alarm clock that pops out of his pocket, and then he starts chasing it down the hallway and smashes the hell out of it. So I. I puppeteered that, and so there's a lot of like little bits and pieces that we kind of added in that that made it into the final film, which is a lot of fun. Um, and then from there, we ended up ended up doing Mortal Kombat because we ended up working with the same folks, uh, same producers and such. So we we were on that. I was on that movie for cry, uh, like almost nine months um, because we did a lot of prep, you know, and then we did a lot of the uh, weapons and all that. And then um, I also created the Marquette that Scorpion uh, uses that comes out of his hand there in the CG version. Um, so I came cool. up with a Marquette for that. And then they just based that off of, you know, what they ended up doing for his, for the CG, you know, overlay, I guess. Um, so, we, you know, we did all the props in that, you know, a lot of the, you know, practical effects and stuff like that, that we could get up, get away with in just in our department. And, um, and the Titanic, I didn't do for a few years after that. <laughs> it was, 
th- that was kind of an interesting thing because I got hired on through a buddy of mine who um, knew the shop steward. And that movie was supposed to come out in July of that year. And I remember working on it in July. And we're all kind of just looking at each other going, isn't this movie supposed to be? Because that movie was supposed to be coming out that day. They had released they had promo press and everything. I mean, that, that was July was it. Didn't even it wasn't even close, and um, well, I mean, we were, we were doing the effects that we were doing on it was the boat um, breaking apart, the Titanic itself breaking apart. So um, I specifically worked on all that stuff where you actually physically see it breaking apart. We did all the miniature uh, aspects of that, which the boat was a miniature, but it was still I think it was like forty five feet long, fifty feet long. It was huge. Um, but the way Cameron worked was that he wanted no less than I think. I think it was like four takes and each take once the boat would break in half each take would take us a week to put it back together so uh, you know so it's not very quick and we were also using lead so when using lead we would have we'd have multiple uh, rubber gloves on and then we'd have to change our gloves out every 20 minutes take a break you know then work in the lead again pound it all out put it back you know because lead was the best thing that we could use to scale wise uh, for the tearing of the uh, hull of the ship so um and I wasn't. I was only on that for, you know, a couple of months, and I took the money I made off of that and made my first short, short film, Dead Soul. So and then just kept going on from there. Very cool. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's zoom in on what you're doing now. So this is the Kickstarter you've got up. Is so for a crossover between your your Lovecraft PI, and the Miskatonic High and. So I think we've got, in our audience, we're pretty clear on, like, we don't have to go all the way back to who is H.P. Lovecraft. We've talked about it before sure. on the show. American horror author, like you mentioned, cosmic horror, like stuff that your mind can't comprehend. Right. Um, and as is pretty much given away by your title, so this is that universe, but also sort of crossbred with some film noir stuff with a hard-boiled Humphrey Bogart-esque detective. Yes. So you mentioned that you had taken some of that from some of Lovecraft's childhood, but tell us a bit, how does that work in that universe? Like, what happens yeah, so, to this Porsche mod? Yeah, so what I ended up doing was is we took... We're big fans of Dashiell Hammett, and, you know, wrote Maltese Falcon and the Continental Op. And the Continental Op is a character that he wrote a multitude of stories around. He's a very interesting guy, because you never know his name. And he's this schlubby kind of detective in the 20s in San Francisco. And he's, you know, he's pretty, not crass, but he's just kind of like his own thing. You know, he's like talking to your grandpa, you know, and, but he's a sharp dude. He's he's one of these guys that, you know, just all he wants to do is figure it out. And he doesn't take anybody's BS. And so I like that aspect of that character. And and I'm a huge fan of film noir. um, And I'm, I really like Humphrey Bogart a lot as, a, as an actor, and I've seen you know everything he's been in a bunch of times. And one of the things I do enjoy about him particularly is is that he reminds me of the Continental Op in the sense that you know he's on his mission, and if he has anything that comes his way, it comes up on his radar that he just is like, ah, eh, all right, now I got to handle this guy, or I got to handle this cartoon, or I got to handle that, whatever. Ultimately, I just have to maintain what I need to do to get to the end to finish this mission, whatever it may be. And he does that in a lot of his films. And I, I like that kind of aspect of this character because it reminds me of the, the old, uh, you know, the, those old movies, but also um, guys that came out of World War One. You know, they were just kind of matter of fact. There was no, you know, no, no, no guessing with these cats. So I like that kind of, you know, I'm not going to say the guy's cold, but Ward is not really a very warm, comforting kind of guy. But... You know, he's also respects you unless you, you know, until you disrespect him and then there's a problem. So I like that kind of combination and, and taking that and mixing it with, you know, some of the, uh, the more nuanced stuff from HP's uh, personal life, like his detective uh, little agency and, you know, the fact that he wanted to be, he wanted to get into the military and he tried to be in the military, but his mom wouldn't let him. And so I wanted my character to be in the military and ended up going to war. Um, and then also Ward was, or I'm sorry, uh, HP was also into chemistry and so on, you know, like the medical field, never got into it. So I figured, well, why can't my guy be, you know, in the medical field? So I just took a lot of those kind of nuances and just kind of flipped them on their head and I just made this character kind of an all around, um, just a person that likes to learn, likes to, you know, kind of figure things out, wants to get to the bottom of it. 
And what's, that's what I kind of like about him a lot in the essences of coming across creatures or, you know, uh, uh, you know, unsavory dudes that he has to kind of contend with. He wants to kind of figure them out before he takes them down, if he can, you know. Um, and as you know, you know, you read both the shot and Curious Case. So he's, you know, he has no bones about, you know, uh, uh, you know, poking fun or, or uh, you know, kind of busting balls, so to speak. But, you know, he, he, he's, he, he tries to put on an air of friendliness as well as trying to get information out of you before, you know, <laughs> he either has to kill you or he's going to let you go or, you know, admit, you know, let you get away to the next phase of, of you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. It's definitely a, a, a it adds something new to that world, because, I mean, if there's anything common to the humans in H.P. Lovecraft stories is that they don't know what's going on and they rarely ever do. Uh, I think there's maybe one or two stories where everyone gets out okay. Uh, but it definitely stands out in this, I guess, just to... Like you said, like this is a guy who's learning, who's figuring these things out, and he is not phased by anything. He's not phased by the cops who don't want to play along, and he's not phased by extra-dimensional horrors that are going to tear apart the, the universe. So it makes for a very... A, I am, what I'm getting at is I am surprised at how peanut butter and chocolate it turned out to take oh. these ideas <laughs> that you. you don't see in a lot of HP stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, 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 it turns into a very entertaining read. Maybe just in a way because as the audience were a little more familiar with these creatures than the characters. Sure. Are, but it still flows yeah. really well. Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, because that's one of the things with HP's work is everybody always ends up insane. Or, uh, you know, stuck in another planet somewhere or, or wandering through the unknown. I mean, it's, they never end, like, very happily. So, I, I, you know, I wanted to give this guy a chance because otherwise he's just going to be a train wreck, you know. Um, you know, he definitely has his issues. But, you know, he, he kind of buries him in, you know, his uh, favorite type of bourbon and uh, smokes a lot of cigarettes to kind of, I guess, <laughs> you know, that's his, you know, his catharticism through it. So, um you know, but yeah, I just wanted to give him the, you know, definitely have that old school, you know, uh, you know, 20s, 30s uh, kind of gentlemanly detective, you know, and, and, and give him this hard task of having to deal with these cosmic beings that he doesn't know where the hell they're from half the time. So how many how many stories do they give in you for this character? Are there other characters in this universe that you'd want to spin off and do stuff with? Yeah, so so he works for the Miskatonic Supernatural Detective Agency. So um, I already have several characters that are going to appear in the next book, um, uh, not the Miskatonic crossover, but um, our next volume that'll be coming out next year for Lovecraft PI. And with in terms of Reanimator, who uh, Herbert West character that appears in our Curious Case book, um, I definitely have some stories for him too. So I mean, I have you know. I have at least 10 different outlines for each character of stuff that I want to do. Um, so there's definitely a wealth. It's just for myself to sit down and, and really kind of hammer it all out. And, you know, you guys know as well as I do that when you start going down the road of Lovecraft. Now, I've, I've made a rule for myself that if, if I'm doing this, you know, and I'm adapting, adapting, adapting some of his um, H.P. Lovecraft stuff, that I, I only wanted to stay with, with either the author's own work and no more than his inner circle at the time, which is Robert Block, you know, Howard, two, two guns, Bob there, you know, uh, you know, Ashton Smith and, and Derelith at best. Mm. I didn't really want to go into any, any fan stuff that was down the road or anything to that degree. I really wanted to stick with anything that's kind of within that vein and even less of that stuff and more just sticking with HP. But with that being said, you know, you, you know, as well as I do with the cool Cthulhu mythos alone, there's so many tangents and I feel like every time I start on the story, um, and this is why Curious Case was like 300 pages when I finished the first script for the uh, comic, because when I started going down this path, I was like, you know, I'd find one of his other stories. I'm like, oh, man, that's a really cool piece. How can I work that into this? Is this going to go to that? And But this could go to this, and that can make that happen down here, down the road, and then we can circle back. You know, you just you get lost in this, these, these various mazes of H.P. Lovecraft stuff, and it's so rich and vivid and out there that you're like, I, I just want to put it all in, but you, you but you can't, you'd have to, you know, obviously because the thing would, you know, take you forever to finish. But that's what I love about this character is that I can, I can put him drop, literally drop him in anywhere. And he has to just figure it out. And, 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 and pulling in all these little nuances from, 
you know, like Curious Case is a perfect example because that's the one I really wanted to kind of open him up more than uh, a shot in the dark, which is primarily just stays in his mouth. We have a little bit of pieces of his past in there. You don't really know too much about him. But in the Curious Case, I wanted to throw more of his background in there and his relationship with uh, Herbert West because in, in my world, they were friends. They were childhood friends. They went to college together. And then something happened in college, and they both ended up getting shipped off to war. And so then from there on, you know, certain things happen, and then they pick up 15 years later at the Curious Case. So to me, there's a lot in there to explore. And I think to have, you know, two different stories going on at some point in the future where you've got the reanimator version of, you know, what happens in him, and then you get Ward Lovecraft's version of what happens for him. Uh, you know, I think it's just a really rich uh, multiverse uh, that I'm um, kind of cultivating. And I guess we're going to find out a little bit more about that in the crossover, too. And on that note, we should talk a little bit about Miskatonic High, um, which is... So this Absolutely. Is, this is a completely separate thing. This is... Is it Mike Shea? Is that right? Yeah, Mike Shea. Mike Shea, yep. And uh, Ryan Mendoza, the two guys that uh, created that book. Gotcha. All right. So if you do, so tell us a little bit about that and then sort of how it ended up sort of mixing in with yours. Yeah, sure. So... Uh, Mike and uh, Mike and Ryan are kind of these these two incredible juggernauts of of creators with their IP because I think they're on book eight now. They just you know that they have on Kickstarter, and I'm not going to say how many they have already in stock and ready to go for more. But I mean, these guys are just I don't know how they do it. I mean, they're cranking stuff out like there's nobody's business, and so I really admire that. And I am also I admire their work ethic on that, but also the way that they fulfilled everybody's uh, Kickstarters, you know, lickety split. And then, you know, but the bonus was is when I started looking at their stuff on Kickstarter last year, I was like, wow, this is kind of cool, man. It's like this Archie meets, you know, Lovecraft monsters. And so it's these five modern kids in prep school and they, you know, they're friends because they kind of, you know, have to be, you know, want to be, you know, they're kind of the kids in the mixed bag. But they're very endearing. They have very endearing relationships with each other and the way they handle the cosmic monsters is a lot like the way Ward does, and where they're 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 kind of freaked out, they you know, or they don't freak out. They're just they're you know they're kind of the parts of Ward that don't exist anymore. They're you know they'll eventually be where he is, so they still have some growing up to do, seeing all this crazy stuff. But I felt that there's a nice little association there, and I also felt too the way the way Lovecraft PI was created is I always wanted to make sure I never painted myself into a corner with that IP. Is I wanted to keep it so that. It was a very malleable and organic IP and that I can, you know, um, always ship word off anywhere because growing up as a kid, I, I, one of my favorite shows of all time is Doctor Who, huge fan of Doctor Who, especially old school Doctor Who. And so I always wanted to make sure that this character, since we're dealing with cosmic entities and it's already in the playbook, then, you know, and we already have HP stories that he goes into parallel universes. He does this, any other thing. It's like, well, why not? I mean, why can't my character do that? So then I started, I met Mike and, uh, um, through, uh, Kickstarter and I, you know, I said, Hey man, I think this is at the end of last year. I said, you know, really like your stuff, read a bunch of his books, vice versa. He read a bunch of my stuff. And, and, uh, I was like, you know, I really want to do a crossover. And so we just started kind of slinging stuff against the wall and, and he had this idea and, and I said, yeah, let's definitely go for that. And so the way we divided it was the first book. Part one, which is out now on Kickstarter, that starts in 1932 with Ward. And just a little side note, that takes place six months after the Curious Case. So um, there's some Easter eggs that will be in part two of the crossover where, you know, references back to the Curious Case. So I always like to throw a little stuff in there like that just to kind of keep you know everybody on their toes. And it's, it's fun for me to do. And... Um, then what ends up happening is he, he ends up fight, uh, you know, you know, kind of getting embroiled with this cosmic, you know, cosmic monster, uh, you know, Shubnigroth, and he gets stuck with this thing for eighty something years. And then the kids discover him in a barn while they're trying to go clean it for some after school project they got to do because they got in trouble or whatever it was. And I was just like, <laughs> that's great. I mean, how crazy is it that this guy is stuck to this creature for eighty six something years <laughs> in a barn? It's completely ludicrous, but in the Miskatonic High world, it works, and in the Lovecraft PI world, it kind of works too. So we just kind of ran with that, and then we just continued the story as it was in part one, with him just kind of the fish out of water, which is obviously, you know, well told, uh, you know, you know, tale I guess of that type of uh, 
you know that type of idea but to have you know ward you know end up in in 2018 which is when that story takes place and have to deal with cell phones and cars you know i think he's in a prius in this too which is which is very funny <laughs> you know the fact that he can't find a good cigarette because all cigarettes got smashed and the, he's trying to get cigarettes from the kids they don't smoke and they're giving him a hard time he's like you know he doesn't know what to do he doesn't even he doesn't even know how he's going to get home right. all he cares about is he he was stuck to this monster the whole time and now he's going to kind of handle that and then you know deal with the kids as well which you know they kind of grade on him so you know but ultimately for him it's his mission and that's all he cares about um but in the same token, I also wanted to, you know, give him kind of this, you know, kind of this Yoda father figure to the kids as well, where he's kind of teaching them this and helping them out with that. So, and vice versa, they do that with him. So I think, you know, it was great for me because it opened, it flexed the character, my character Ward at least, um, you know, to go with this different route so that when I work, while I'm working on the next book, he's now has all that kind of baggage with him. And how does he handle that? You know, a guy that just, you know, had this experience in another time and witness witness this in the future, you know? Um, and so for Mike and I just kind of having this, you know, putting this whole thing together was a lot of fun. And, you know, we lit, we set our egos aside, you know, which neither one of us really have anything. We have any ego with all this stuff. We just love making these books. That's all we want to do. Just make these books, tell these stories. And so for him and I to kind of really work together, was a lot of fun. We, you know, he wrote the first script. I wrote the second one Then we'd go back and tweak it. And make sure that the you know the kids were talking right and War was talking right. Everybody was all you know kind of dialed in. And um, to be honest, and not to sound cheese balls, I think we do have something very kind of magical here because you know um, I haven't read a lot of comic books in a long time at this point. And, and uh, when I used to, you know, my comic collection I think stopped in like '91. So all the stuff I have, all the crossover stuff I have, is very old school. But I really like that the old crossovers because you just didn't know what the hell was going to happen. And the other thing too is with this is that you know the, Ward's not out there to go, you know, beat the kids up. And the kids aren't there to beat him up. They're actually fighting together for a common goal to take something else out. And I thought that was kind of cool too, is they have to get along to do a job, even though they're from two totally different worlds, you know, time periods and so on and so forth. Um, so it's been a lot of fun working with Mike and uh, Ryan on this. Okay, red. So we should uh, we'll relist them. We'll re-mention everything back at the end of the show. But before we move on to the list, we should just uh, provide some links. So that Kickstarter is up now, and your stuff is up. I so the Lovecraft PI stuff is all DarksideMedia.us. Yeah, we're under DarksideMedia.us. Um, we're also under LovecraftPI.com. Um, you can find us on Instagram under LovecraftPI or Darkside Media. Um, Facebook, we're under Darkside Media, and then our Kickstarter goes until November fifth. So we've got uh, 22 more days. How's that going so far? It was good. I mean, you know, we keep uh, the initial pledge. We always keep low. Um, I learned off my first Kickstarter, we had to raise 12,000 and that was brutal trying to do that in 30 days. Um, so I swore I'd never do that again because it was just, it was too difficult. So for me, you know, getting an initial pledge is one thing. And then um, we always keep kind of promoting the entire time, but we always had a lot of stuff kind of lined up whether it's stretch goals, whether it's add-ons, and that's what's kind of nice with Kickstarter this round for us. They're actually letting, letting us beta test their add-on, their new add-on, um, you know, part of the program, which normally we go through backer kit. So we're kind of curious to see how that works. Um, but to me, that's kind of what it's all about, is just to get it out there more. And I'd rather, you know, I rather, you know, the thing with Kickstarter too is that if you don't make all your money at the end of the X amount of days, then that's it, they take it away, it's gone. So. You know, it's really important for us to make that initial investment and then to kind of keep building on that investment and really just kind of, you know, showing people more of what we've got, you know, because we've been working on these projects, you know, between Mike and I, we've been working on these projects a long time. So we've had a lot of experience uh, with different types of merchandise and getting out there. And um, I know uh, Mike primarily sticks to Kickstarter. I do a lot of uh, Comic Cons. So um, for me, it's great because I get out there. Well, not this year, but uh, typically you get out there and uh, meet a lot of fans and gets, you know, and get it out there even further. And some people um, either find us, you know, through that and get to Kickstarter or go from Kickstarter to that. So it's, it's neat seeing the people who invest into us from the early days, you know, coming out to shows going, hey, man, we're here to see you. We want to get your stuff, you know, what you have, what's new. And that's huge for us because, you know, I'm a one man operation and I have a crew of guys, but I'm running this whole thing by myself. So to get guys, you know, to get people to show up, 
uh, Decons and, and come to your table when you're buried amongst you know Marvel, DC, and everything else that's out there. Um, it's you know it's pretty humbling when people are seeking you out. Great, yeah. Uh, do you ever make it up to to Canada? Come to any shows around here? No, actually, it's funny that you mentioned it because um, you know Toronto is definitely one place I really want to go for a show. I've actually never. No, I've never been to Canada. So I, I would really like to actually come up there and do some shows. I don't really know how many that are up there, but um, I'm all for it because I also am looking to do shows over in uh, Europe as well right now because we have our both the Shot in the Dark and Curious Case we just got released, are released uh, through a Danish publisher, and they were actually translated uh, into Danish. And uh, the books are absolutely gorgeous. I mean, these guys did an amazing job. They're hardcover. They're slightly bigger, so they kind of look like a – they kind of look like a little kid's book, <laughs> but it's Lovecraft PI. It's just the most bizarre thing because it's big, shiny. It's like, wow, this is kind of neat. And then you open it up and you're like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on in this thing? So it's 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 really kind of nice to see like their take on our stuff. And um, when they really shot last year, I, you know, they sold uh, virtually sold out of our copies uh, within the first month or so. So they have Curious Case out now, so that's doing very well over there. So it's very nice that – um, you know, that we're kind of suddenly global, you know, to some degree. That's awesome. I, I, we can't uh, wait to see you up here. They, we've got a bunch of shows, uh, the biggest one being uh, Fan Expo. So if you make it out to one of those, we would definitely love to, to meet you in person. Yeah, no, absolutely. Are you guys, do, you guys aren't doing shows quite yet, are you? Or are you guys, everybody's prepping for next year? Or hoping to? <sighs> Who knows? <laughs> oh, really? It's still in that, I, mean, I know, I mean, here in the U.S., it's, Still kind of a mess. So I just didn't. I wasn't certain about Canada. Uh, it's it's it's. I don't want to say better than the U.S., but not quite as good as New Zealand. Um, but we're yeah, we're still not. Yeah, right. We're still not doing large indoor groups. Uh, everything is still off the table for now. Uh, hopefully next year, I think. Yeah, no, it's funny because I do a lot. Of, I've been doing a lot of um, pop up one day shows uh, before all this hit, and those were a lot of fun because you know you get your own space. You just—it's an outside situation, so you—you you know, as long as it doesn't rain, you're fine. But um, you know, I find those are great, and I feel that 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 might be where we're gonna—you know—might actually start going more to, towards as opposed to doing these big, you know, arena stadium type of shows, you know, in the foreseeable future at least. Okay, well, let's uh, let's get into the the meat of the matter here, which is your amazing top five list. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> What uh, so should I go from the should I go from the I'll go from the bottom to the top. Yeah, yeah, let's save the best for last. Okay. So, um the first the, the number 5, the one that I picked first was um or last. And and I picked it because I was when I was writing the curious case, I did some um I did an expanded version of the curious case which um more of that information will come out into the next book. But when I was when I was looking up certain things, I was trying to figure out how to end Herbert West's situation, where he's he's uh, you know caught back up by uh, Himmler and the Cthulhu Knots, and he's you know he's he's under lock and key at this point. And I was like, wow, how could I make the most you know mad? He's like the, the epitome of the mad scientist. So how could I if you say he escapes, you know, because that's how it always works. People escape the chains that they're kind of uh, in bridlement. So I was like, okay, how can I make this work? And since, you know, Himmler's on the same spectrum as he is to a degree with dealing with the supernatural, he comes up with this whole thing of creating it. He found a spell that brings this thing called the dimensional shambler. And he's able to kind of harness it and he attaches it to the collar of uh, uh, Herbert West. So if he breaks the chains around his neck, it unleashes the spell, which causes the shambler to suddenly start following him and then calls more shamblers. And what these things are is they were, um, they're called the hunters. They're also called the hunters from beyond. And, and they first appear in the horror at the museum, which, uh, HP Lovecraft, uh, co-wrote. And there's these, there are these weird beings that come from a parallel universe and they, they kind of parallel jump. So they kind of follow you around. And, and what they do is they telepathically, you know, uh, you know, freeze your mind and suck you back into their parallel universe basically and your body is slowly just torn apart in this kind of ooze and as it's being torn apart your mind's being ripped apart by all the monsters that are live in this planet so it's, it sounds like an absolute horrible way to go you know and 
I don't know how long it lasts, but it, it to me it just sounds like wow. If if I get stalked by some parallel universe creature, and then stuck back to their planet and have to sit in this goop and be have my body just kind of ripped apart and my mind ripped apart by these things for you know eons, then to me that would be a great thing for West to have to kind of contend with. So. That was my number five, is a dimensional shampoo. And I had never really, I hadn't read that story until fairly recently. And I was like, wow, that thing is wild. Um, so when I did some more research on it, I was like, yeah, this, this thing is going to be the badass going after Herbert West at some point. And in terms of, like, if we're looking at, you know, like your top five sort of Lovecraft creatures, I mean, and all, like, it, it, as helpful as it is to the story, like, the, the appeal to this is just like, like, hey, what a cool thing, or... Like I guess what like what makes the dimensional shambler better than say like one of the like one of the creatures in the paintings or the whisperer in the dark that kind of thing. I don't think it's you know from a lot of the um, the fandom that's out there I don't really see many of this type of character this type of creature out there so and I always like to pick you know I'm obviously I have a couple in there that are everybody knows but I like to try to also go with stuff that's not you know right off the top. Yeah. And to find something like that that's a little bit more interesting where it's, you know, it's parallel universe jumping between, you know, to catch up with you. And then, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a mind thing. It's this, that. And the other. It's it's a lot going on there. And also the fact that the creature doesn't, it's not fast moving. It's just kind of slothy and just like almost corpse-like. It's kind of creepy. Because <laughs> it's like you could be running away from this thing and running away from this thing like Jason being chased by Jason or Michael Myers. But then suddenly the thing appears. And I always love that in, you know, the slasher films where it's the same kind of thing. It's like you could be running for miles and suddenly, wait, oh, wait, Jason just showed up. He's right behind me. How the hell did that happen? So kind of, I guess it's that, that you know, that whole lizard brain of myself going, oh, it's, these are kind of like <laughs> those types of killers, you know, they just show up. So it, it's just, I don't know, it, it just had that kind of nostalgic feel for me and, and also something that was very unique that I didn't, I don't see a lot of out there in the, the Lovecraft uh, fandom. Awesome. All right, let's keep it rolling. What's your number four? Okay, so number four is, you know, and again, I mean, this is all, you know, we, we could pick on who's four, who's five, and three, and but I picked the deep ones. Um, the deep ones were in, in our first book, Sh- uh, Shot in the Dark, and what I like about th- these characters is that they're, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty effed up way to kind of come about being a deep one, is you're, you're inbred with a human, and you start off as human, you don't necessarily know that you're, you know, you're going to become an insmouth deep, you know, an insmouthian, I guess, ultimately a deep one. And then your body just goes to this kind of change as you get older. And then once you hit a certain age after puberty into your early 20s, you start getting gills. You start kind of metamorphosizing into this, you know, aquatic creature that's just horrible looking. <laughs> it's just like, that's really going to suck. You know, I mean, as far as like a, you know, turning into anything is not cool but to go from like uh, you know a beautiful woman and suddenly you're turning into this hideous you know undersea creature that's just basically going to just jump back in the ocean and you know hang out at the devil's wreath and go eat whatever the hell else it's going to go to attack and, and or spawn or do whatever it needs to do but i just i like that kind of aspect of you know going from from the human to primordial um as you know uh, back to the primordial aspect of things and I don't know, maybe it was it was back when I saw. You guys ever see that uh, Roger Corman movie, Humanoids from the Deep? I think it's from like 1982. No, can't say that I have. Yeah, they 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 have um, the, the 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 creatures in that are very deep one esque. And uh, I saw the movie again probably when it first came out. And there's a couple of scenes in there. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> and it's you know it's creatures mating with this you know female victim. And I'm like, what? And it wasn't until years later I was like, wait a second, did Corman? Did he read this? And then, holy smokes. So I don't know if he, I don't know if Corman used some of the stuff from Innsmouth in that movie, but that's the movie I saw that introduced me to Innsmouth. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, this is really fucked up. You know, so, uh, <laughs> you know, so again, it's just all these things that kind of, you don't really understand why you pick things or, you know, unless you know, just, I guess you just like them. But for me, it's just, I always kind of rely on the universe kind of like making all the connecting dots. I, so. I liked when I was reading about them that they're not just, they're not sort of out there weird you know you can't communicate with them they're not they're not beyond comprehension it's like the people of Innsmouth have a deal with them and and it's like it's a horror and a horrific thing but you can you can 
make a connection with it. And I, and I, at the end of your first book, I love the the sort of twist. I don't want to spoil it, but the I think it's the police chief and the the twist with him. Yeah, the reveal. Really, really enjoyed that. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it, it's always what's hidden in the shadows is is you know you really don't want to go poking around there too much. And I, I kind of like with our book, we didn't have. We only touch upon that stuff. I mean, it's it's funny because that book, even though it's, it takes place in Innsmouth and we have the Innsmouthian characters and the, and the, the Dagon and the Deep Ones and so on and so forth, it doesn't really go into the lore so much of Innsmouth like the book does. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, they had this horrible deal with these guys and you know, it took the military to go in there and kind of eradicate the whole place. But you really got to, you know, what's, what I love about Innsmouth too, that just the story itself, is that it's, it's really that you know, hole in the wall, coastal town, small village. Like you go, you know, you roll into town. You're like, everybody's looking at you sideways because you're the new guy. And it's like, oof, I couldn't even imagine showing up to that place, you know, because um, you're probably going to be fish food, you know, <laughs> or worse. Um, yeah, that kind of being the outsider is bad enough when you're not dealing with fish people. I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So number three I have is, is Haster, which... Um, you know, Haster, again, one of the reasons why I liked him is there was a, um, I don't know if I have, I don't have it next to me. There's a, there's a book I found that has a lot of, um, that has basically all of HP Lovecraft's library, uh, you know, listed in it. And so I was, I was like, wow, I, if this was years ago, I was like, well, I, I want to buy every book that he had or try to locate, which was ridiculous because there's, there's hundreds of them. But, he had this. He has this book by Robert Chambers called *The King in Yellow*, and so I read that, you know. And I remember uh, reading that H.P. had also read. You know, he had read that book as well. That's why I had read it, and and he had used, you know, a portion of that character uh, in one of his poems, um, which was in *The Whisper in the Darkness*. And I just kind of like the idea that this character has a, a multitude of names, for one, and the fact that it's. I think one of my favorite, and I put it in the curious case, is him who is not to be named. And I just thought that just stuck with me as just such a weird name of a character, him who is not to be named. But he's an actual character, and you don't really know kind of where he fits in. But then there's also the lore that uh, I think it was Del, uh, Derelith wrote that, you know, because he picked up some of the Cthulhu mythos, and, you know, Haster's supposed to be uh, Cthulhu's half brother. So I was like, huh interesting you know so you know for me as a storyteller I, you know uh, since our, our second book is to deal with a lot of Call of Cthulhu or at least a portion of Call of Cthulhu from the original story um, I always like that kind of vibe you know I like the family dynamic of things whether it's either cosmic or actual you know humans so to have like you know Cthulhu in there and then the, you know, the opening pages of the curious case we have this guy who's in this yellow robe as like you know, so I always wanted to have that aspect of things. Is like, is he is he Haster, or is he the personification of Haster, or is he a cult of you know? How does that all fit into this, and how does that come into play? Because to me, Haster is just one of these characters that just is kind of a shit starter, and and um, having something having having him uh, uh, potentially go up against Cthulhu, I think would be a pretty awesome sight to see. So that's something that I'm you know potentially working towards, and um, and. Yeah, no, that's I'm sorry, I was going off on a ramble, but uh, yeah, no, I just, I just I don't know, I just it's something about that character I really dig a lot. So I mean, in that, so you're looking at it as sort of uh, you know somebody moving the pieces from behind the scenes, uh, which is cool because there's a lot like it that fits it in a way that like Haster is definitely one of those more unknowable characters. Right. Um, whereas, like Cthulhu is very specifically like he's this tall and this wide, and here's what he looks like. Like that—that's some earlier Lovecraft stuff where it's sort of up to you. Like that—that that book, Robert Chambers' King in Yellow, is about like it's about a play that the characters read that the audience doesn't right. really get to, and the play drives them crazy and it has something to do about Haster. So there's. I guess what I'm getting to is that Haster is very unknown, and there's no, like maybe he's a person, and maybe he's a giant Cthulhu-esque monster. Maybe he's both. Maybe there's not a difference. Um, so which makes it like very cool, but also kind of hard to pin down. Although maybe that's well, I think the point. That, 
Well, it, it, that's why it's probably why HP liked it when he read it because it's it's pretty obtuse. I mean, Haster in that book is really obtuse. You don't really know. You're right. You don't really know what he is. And and I think HP because he, you know, he writes you know similarly in that in that essence of uh, vagaries in a lot of ways. And you you know, a lot of times you come away from his stories not having all the answers. And so for him, you know, throwing that in there is a nice little homage, you know, to somebody who he he liked as an author. But to kind of just build upon that mythos, you know, with that character, I think is interesting. And then Derelict takes it to a whole new level with it, you know, when he's, you know, with the stories that he writes with it. So, um, and that's what, you know, that's one of the things I wanted to say too. You know, one of the things I did, I do really like about HP's work and, you know, um, is that he always allowed people to expand on his mythos. He didn't care. You know, he's like, you know, if you have a good idea, let's go with it and see what happens, you know. And, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, as an author, uh, allowing, you know, his friends to do that. It, it, that was something I, I was picking up on too, doing the research for this. Cause it's, this is not, uh, you know, as far as uh, our sort of divided interests go when covering the entire geek field, this is uh, uh, definitely a, a blank spot for me, but it was fun learning more about it and seeing, you know, I, I was under the impression that Lovecraft stuff was very specific and it was, it was just, his world but reading about this it's like he picked up a baton from other people and added to it and then other people continued it after him and it creates this sort of blurred world of what what he created and what he adapted and what other people have adapted from him and you're you're part of that lineage now with this work and it's kind of a cool place to be yeah thank you i appreciate that i mean well because i think with his universe it's so expansive I don't think you could ever get tired of it. I mean, unless you obviously keep, re, you know, redoing the same tropes that other folks have done. But I think there's so many monsters, there's so many ideas that you can. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, uh, Jesse, you mentioned before this. You had re, you read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, I find when I read his stuff, it's it's fascinating. But at the end of it, I'm like exhausted. I mean, because he's, you know, to really to really think about like every sentence. I mean, forget about a paragraph, but just take a sentence out of his work, and you're just like. Okay, what the hell is he trying to say? You know, and, you know, a lot of his writing is very flowery and, and kind of, uh, you know, can be sometimes obtuse and go around, you know, beat around the bush a bit. But I think in the end, it's just, it's, it's, it's almost like he's writing in poet. He's almost like he's writing these long versions of poetry and you, and it's stream of conscious and you just have to kind of, kind of pull out, you know, what works, not works, but I should say what, you know, maybe you understand, um, in that way. And I feel like, you know, if there was a, uh, if there's a filmmaker that could, you know, replicate anything that he may have done, it, it'd probably be, you know, I love Stuart Gordon, but I think like David Lynch is more in the mind of like that obtuseness, you know, whereas I'm not saying I, I would see, I could see David Lynch doing a Lovecraft film, which would be pretty awesome. But, um, <laughs> but those two guys, I think it's just like, they're in that kind of same headspace of, you know, giving something to the audience and just kind of letting you digest it for a while. And it's, it's not something you may or may not figure out right away. And then as you start peeling away the layers, you're like, Oh, okay. Okay. I get you now. Well, just like that. That's one of the things I find with, uh, with Lynch. Now you, you brought him up. It's like, I, I do find Lynch's work oftentimes is, is pretty obtuse to me. And, um, but I, and whether I like it or not, I can always tell he has, he knows what he's saying. Like he, there's some, a guiding force there. And if I don't, get it that doesn't that's not necessarily a problem with the work it's more of a problem with me and if i put more time into it i know this stuff is there and i think there's some of that with with lovecraft too like there's a lot that is can be a bit obtuse on the surface but i feel like you at least know that there's a voice behind it that knows what he's trying to say yeah no definitely and, and you know some of his stuff came from dreams as well and you know you have uh, artist hr Geeker who created the alien. I mean, a lot of his work came from his nightmares. So, I mean, there's something to be said about that where you just kind of, uh, you know, whether you jot down your dreams or you remember them or, or however it is that you're able to kind of, you know, conjure that on a piece of paper, but to be able to put that imagery down there and, and to, and to kind of translate it like that and just get it out there. And then for other people to digest it and be like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but this is pretty cool, you know? And, you know, I feel that's with a lot of HP stuff too. Some of the monsters, you know, in the way he throws his cosmic monsters in there, sometimes it's just, you know, a, a quick little, you know, a quick little description. I mean, it's, you're like, wait, whoa, 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 
Azimoth? What the hell is that thing? You know, and you got to go back and read the description. It's this, this like kind of globulous mass with the eyes and tentacles and the sound. The other thing, you're like, how the hell is that thing supposed to, you know, move and create? You know, so you start thinking about the mechanics of these things too. Um, and you know, we'll get into you know my top, you know, my top one, but the, you know, number one in a minute. But that was always one of those things is when you start kind of visualizing what he's trying to put out, and then now you see the fandom. You know, you figure his fandom, he's been dead for, you know, what, eight, over 80 years now. Um, he just celebrated his 130th birthday. And you figure his fandom has been going on since, you know, more or less that he passed, you know, after he passed in 37. So that's a long time for for one guy to have created a genre that's just exp- exponentially just expanded over the, over the course of that, that, that time. And it continues to build, it continues to grow. And I feel that, you know, since you know, his name became public domain in 2010, I feel in the last, you know, only in the last five, six years, it's really exploded into stuff. You know, I mean, crying aloud, you can't, whether you're on social media or Kickstarter or whatever, there's something new that people are putting out of his work. And, um, you know, I haven't read every single thing he's done. So it's just, it's always fun to see fans that, that kind of, you know, like I did with the Dimensional Channel, I go, oh, wait, he, cre- he created that creature? What did that thing do? You know, so you're always finding. I feel it's like always a treasure map with HP. It's like you always find these different little alleyways and you know, uh, you know, little gems that are kind of hidden in there that you know may have overlooked. Or, you know, when an earlier reading you may have done, or when you go back and revisit stuff, or you know, catching another fan doing it, and then it's just like, wow, that's really cool. And or the design work, because I mean, that's the other thing too, is the way the internet is now with fandom and just the artists alone that are creating this stuff is impressive as hell. All right, let's uh, let's hear number two. Yeah, so number two I've got is uh, Neil Lithotep. And there's – one of the things I really like about this character, again, with Hasra, he has a lot of, you know, is he the, the man of a thousand names, I think is, is one of his – well, is one of his names. But I like how the fact that he's this, he's this you know, kind of – he's an outer god, but he's just this kind of shape-shifting character that can go anywhere from being a man, you know, to a, a pharaoh to – you know, uh, this kind of giant, you know, gigantic earthworm creature thing to the crawling chaos. I mean, you know, I, I love, one of the things I do love about HP is that he was, you know, he never got tired of his characters. He always kind of kept transforming him to something else. And I think that's, what's kind of neat with this character. And, and I think, it, I could be wrong, but I think that left appears in probably more of his, um, stories than any of his other characters. Um, but he appears in different versions. And that's one of the things I kind of like is that he just kind of sprinkles these characters in there. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like they have to be in there, but you know, if you've got Azathoth in the story and you've got, you know, Nilothotep and maybe you've got Cthulhu, it's like, he just kind of disposes of them. He just throws them in there. And I think that's really kind of nice. And, and for me with Nilothotep, there's a lot in there that you could, um, you can pull from. And one of the things that, um, I like is that, like for, for us, we like putting real characters in some of our stories. And so I'm working on one right now with, you know, uh, with Harry Houdini, who was one of my favorites growing up as a kid, um, you know, as a magician. And how dope would it be to have him, you know, as Nailotep, you know, and just like, how would that work? So we're working stuff like that into the stories, too, of, of you know, real characters turning into these things. And how does, you know, because Nailotep to me is a magician himself. He's this kind of creator of all. And, um, you know, ha- you know, having that kind of as is something that people can relate to, but then seeing it as this creature that, you know, can turn into this fantastical thing, but then can be shipped off into the dream world and have to deal with his father, you know, or then, uh, you know, goes to another or then shows up in another parallel universe and does this. I mean, that's the thing, too, with his characters is that they never he never wrote these characters into any type of uh, situations where they couldn't get out of. They were always either in a different parallel universe, different time, different plane, different whatever. Um and so I think, I don't know if he did it because of, I don't know if he created these characters and, um, you know, gave them the different names in order to throw the fans off when he wrote this stuff, or if he, if he was consciously doing it, I have no idea. But, um, I think, you know, this particular character I like because it's another shape-shifting type of character that can change into a multitude of different things. Um, and that's what, one of the reasons why I, I really dig it. And he's also, um, he does make an appearance in the next book. <laughs> so I threw him in there. <laughs> All right, well, okay. do you, should we move on to number one? Yeah, we can do number one. So number one, I, I you know, of course, it's the big, big, big one of them all, uh, Cthulhu. And 
you know, I'm sure it makes a lot of people's top list. For me, it was, uh, I don't even, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm trying to remember when even the first time I even saw or read about that character. Um, but the idea that it's, you know, it's part man, part dragon, part squid. It's just like, what the hell? You know, and the way the, the way it just kind of comes about, and also the fact that it's what's fascinating to me is the fact that it's, it's stuck in this kind of uh, permanent, uh, you know, dream state. You know, thousands of feet underwater, and you know, in Arie, and isn't able to just kind of break out and kind of cause problems. There's all these different puzzles that have to go into place to actually, you know, wake Cthulhu up, and. What's cool is that, you know, uh, I know people, you know, if you go online, people always compare Cthulhu to Godzilla and so on and so forth. And for me, it's like we have Godzilla, but we haven't had like a really good Cthulhu movie or, you know, that's what I want to see. Mm. You know, I want to see that dude take out things, you know. I mean, we've seen Godzilla do it and King Kong do it. All these guys do it, you know, a million times over. But it's like, you know, I want to see that movie because that, that dude is a lot bigger than everybody else. And also, I also like the fact that he can... um you know, across the planet, he can go ahead and mentally just screw with people. You know, he can make them go insane. He can make them see things. And I think that's really kind of neat too. He's not just a big lumbering kind of creature, just kind of storming up out of the ocean and doing his thing. It's, it's also a mental thing and, and, you know, seeping into your dreams. And, and I always love the idea that, you know, Lovecraft, you know, always kind of keeps with the whole dream world, you know, dream of the witch house or dream of Kanda. Um, and the fact that he has uh, these characters kind of, uh, you know, bleed in and out of that, you know, the, the, the dream sequences of these things. And with Cthulhu, there's just so much I think you can do with it, you know, beyond what he did with Call of Cthulhu, which, you know, I like Call of Cthulhu. I think it's a cool little story. Agreed. It's, 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 it's one of those stories where you're like, you just want more. You know, you get to the end of like, no, no, I want to see the next adventure, what happens with these guys. Because the way it's broken down is in these these odd little chapters and they just give you just enough, just enough. But you never have like, you know, the big fight at the end or the big, you know, you never have the the satisfactory thing that ever happens to Cthulhu if he wins or loses or anything. He just kind of is there, you know, peppered throughout these stories as kind of this very, you know, mystical figure. I don't know. He's just, he's just one of those characters I think is just one of the, the, the most interesting because he's which I think is hysterical. He's the most widely popular, for one. Um, and I don't know if it's because of just what he looks like or what, because most of HB's characters are all kind of blobulous tentacle masses. <laughs> so I guess it makes sense. But, uh, you know, but something about Cthulhu has a very, um, a, lot of, a lot of interesting characteristic qualities just in the way, you know, that creature kind of conducts itself, I guess, in the stories. Even though it does very little, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the stream of things. But certainly, it's it's part of the zeitgeist. Like when yeah, you, definitely. Like when somebody doesn't know what Lovecraft is, and you say, "Well, you know Cthulhu," like you did, he did that, right? And that's the way. I mean, I'm trying to do what you're doing. I'm trying to think, like, where did I first hear of it? And I, I know the the real Ghostbusters fought Cthulhu once. <laughs> oh my god! Um, I completely yeah. forgot about. It. Yeah, I remember that cartoon. Yeah, <laughs> so that's there. I'm not Jesus. sure. I don't know the episode. I'm trying to find it here. I don't know the. That would be great, yeah. or anything, but I don't even know if I even saw that would have that been episode. Pretty early, but like even before that, that's the one that sort of crossed over. Yeah, because that'd be like early, stream. late eighties, early nineties at best, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I'm mean, also thinking like a lot of video games, like I could, even if they don't use the name, like you know, a big squid-faced, small-winged monster will show up. Well, yeah, I mean, you had well back in the eighties, you had the RPGs called Cthulhu, which was huge absolutely huge so i mean that oh sure you know definitely carried it through but that was you know very you know underground pretty much at the time um but i I don't even know where the i can't even think of where he would have uh first popped up as as a big big pop culture type of uh, character but now you you can get you know i mean i see this stuff all whether it's you know the plushy cthulhu or a knitted cthulhu or you know i mean I would love to have somebody just do a a research paper on just like how many different versions of that character are there, you know. I I just did a a little Google and the uh, real Ghostbusters episode is called brilliantly the collect call of Cthulhu. That's hilarious. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, that's going to be some YouTubing tonight, I think. (laughs) 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah, definitely. no, there's like there's even there's a a, a, a well it's it is a chain. There's only a couple of them, but there's a, a geeky themed pub up here up in Toronto and in Vancouver, and they they have a Cthulhu themed cocktail that you can buy with extra money. They actually serve it in a replica, like a ceramic replica of the idol. Oh wow, that's from cool. The, you know, oh yeah, oh, from, oh, from call, yeah. You, yeah, there's yeah. a guy. I got some. Uh, I got some uh, Cthulhu tiki mugs. I, I got from a guy. Um, I think he was in Germany. I found him on Instagram or something a few years ago, and I was yeah. like, "Oh my god, he makes these handmade tiki mugs!" And I was like, "I gotta have them," you know. <laughs> yeah, it's of all the monsters. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just because it's the one that's like the easiest to reproduce in a physical form. But that's the one. That's like that's Lovecraft's big name. Yeah, and he and it's funny because I mean his, his sketches. You know, when you look at his sketches, it's pretty crude, but, you know, when you compare that to, you know, the one millionth version of Cthulhu that you see now, it's, it's the same thing. You know, and it's kind of crazy. Yeah, the idea that, is still there. Yeah, that idea is still there, and you, it, they didn't change it that much. So that shows you, I mean, after, you know, what, almost 100 years that that one character that he created is still just as popular. I mean, obviously, he's far more popular now than it ever was. You know, um, I mean, Christ is in, I think it's in the Lovecraft country. So, I mean, it's just, it's crazy to me that that, you know, that one monster, I mean, that's, you know, a creature from the Black Lagoon, which is based off of the Deep Ones. I mean, that's a great thing with H.P. Lovecraft's work, too, is that it's really, um, you know, been really borrowed a lot through pop culture and film for, for years. I mean, forget about just literature, but, you know, there's tons of movies out there. Um, that have all his, you know, kind of his fingerprint on it, one way or the other. All right, yeah, I think then that's the best way to to sum it up. Is just that they're everywhere. They've been behind <laughs> the scenes the entire time, even from the unknown. They were before we were here, and they will be after we're gone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So uh, Lovecraft PI crossing over with Miskatonic High. I know we mentioned it before, but let's hit it again. Where can all your stuff be found, Dave? Sure, yeah, so you can find us at lovecraftpi.com. Our Kickstarter uh, is up live now until November 5th. And you can also get our, uh, we're also on Etsy. Uh, you can look us up there. It's lovecraftpi, darksidemedia.us, Instagram. I mean, we're out there. Awesome. We'll be sure to post the links online as well. Um, be sure to check us out the usual places, uh, geektop5.com, facebook.com, slash geektop5. We'll cover all the lists, but... Uh, before we get to there, Dave, thanks so much for joining us, and thank you for your list. And uh, this is all awesome. This was great to have you, and I really enjoyed reading your stuff. I'm definitely going to pick up more of it. Thank you, I man. cannot recommend it enough. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys having me on tonight. I really do. Thank you so much. Well, we're giving out thanks. I always want to make sure we mention Jamie Reum, uh, the guy behind our theme song. Be sure to check him out. A Reum is spelled R-E-A-U-M-E. He's at Jamie Reum Official or Jamie underscore Reum on Instagram. And be sure to check out his project, TriviaSchmivia.com, where he's trying to bring back uh, trivia pub nights, but virtually, since we can't do it in real life right now. Um, there's league play. There's just individual nights. There's a whole bunch of fun things you can do, and it is a blast. So be sure to check that out. And finally, of course, final special thanks to you, the audience. Uh, we get to do all this cool stuff because of you, and uh, happy to bring it to you. Is there uh, anything that you can't believe we didn't put on the list or any questions uh, you have for Dave or just want to check out more stuff about Lovecraft PI and Miskatonic High? All kinds of ways you can reach out to us and find out or let us know. Graham, what's all our contact information? Our email address is uh, geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5. We're on Twitter at geektop5, and we're even doing a little streaming on Twitch, twitch.tv slash geektop5. Plenty of stuff to keep you busy uh, in the interim, and during that time, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>